Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now this month we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. But today we have a special bonus session that's pre-recorded with a friend of mine, Christine Bio. Good morning, Christine. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Michelle. If you're watching the video, you can see that she's framed by these lovely <laughs> palm trees. <laughs> so she's got sun. Um, and we're not going to say what hour it actually is that she's <laughs> she's calling in from. Uh, Christine Bile is the author of the novel Lookout, which is shortlisted for the Center for Fiction's 2023 first novel prize. And if you know anything about this prize, this is a big, big deal. So I'd really check out this book. It was also a great group read selection. And she also wrote Dirt Work and Education in the Woods, which was shortlisted for the 2014 Willa Award in nonfiction. So she can do both fiction and nonfiction beautifully. Christine is, is an associate editor at Alaska Quarterly Review. She teaches writing workshops in public schools. And she has worked as a professional trail builder for 28 years. She lives in interior Alaska on the homelands of the Dene people. I should have asked you how to pronounce that correctly. Is it Dene? That was pretty good. Okay, that's pretty good. She's being nice to me. Okay. Again, this month we're talking about things that are holding people back in their writing careers. And I know a lot of writers... Um, have dealt with a lot of these obstacles in their careers, and you've worked in both fiction and nonfiction. Um, can you talk us through some of the things that you have hit in your writing career, some of the obstacles you've hit, how you've kind of surpassed them, even some things that you might still be dealing with today? Because um, I think, I, I don't know if we ever get past <laughs> some of these things. We just keep, you know, trying to learn and pushing forward. And any, any um, advice that you have for our listeners? Thanks, Michelle. I'm. It's interesting to frame um, a, a set of talks and conversations around this topic because I think you're right that no matter how long or short or old or young or how many books, so many writers deal with the notion that somehow we're not enough. Our process isn't enough. How much we're able to give isn't enough. Um, whatever our first drafts look like isn't enough, whatever. And so um, for me, I've had a couple persistent themes in that vein that have um, been my most troublesome, I guess, over the course of 30 some years of writing. The first one is that I'm too slow. Um, mm -hmm. My first book, Dirt Work, took about 10 years from the first line written to publication. And that seemed like an epically long time at the time. I think I was 39 when my first book came out. Um, and the second book, Lookout, actually elapsed even longer over about 25 years. And of course, I wasn't working on it, writing it that whole time, but the very first lines, which I later realized were part of a novel, were written in a fiction workshop um, with the inimitable Bill Kittredge, who was a beautiful, prolific, and very formative American Western writer um, in Missoula, Montana in 1997, I believe. And then when the book came out um, in March of 2023, it had been almost exactly 25 years. So um, that has been a persistent niggle for me that I'm slow and that I should be doing more. I should be doing faster. I think that the pressure on the writers along those lines has only gotten worse as our 
cultural world has become more and more focused around the timeline produced by social media that we're supposed to be always re-upping something uh, quickly. And that doesn't always work for everybody with a deep creative process. Um, and I'm not poo-pooing okay. if it does. If you're a fast writer, that's grand. You probably have your own worries. I'm too fast. I should slow down. But for me, my orienting question was, why am I so slow? And I think I have really come to embrace in the last maybe five years or so that reframing that from that I'm not too slow, but that the work that I do takes time for, for whatever reason. Um, and we yeah. can get more into that at the craft level, specifically about my novel that just came out, Lookout, um, because in that case, 25 years sounds so long, it's almost embarrassing, especially when I think of like, you know, a lot of debut novelists are 25 years old. <laughs> um, so I feel like this old lady who takes forever, but I also feel that the work that I wrote could not have happened quickly for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, think, that's like, probably Dorothy, my big one. Yeah. Like Dorothy Parker was always terribly, terribly slow. Um, and sentences would just come out of her painfully. She talked about that a lot. And I also remember, so I am also quite slow. Um, and, and I don't, I just, and sometimes it drives me crazy sometimes, but I just, I don't know. Some of my, my books, I don't, I, I don't, wish that they had come out earlier because I, they wouldn't be what they are and i needed to live through that experience and live through the book in order for that to happen and i also remember marilyn robinson i think it was you know after um her first her first big novel it took her a long time to come out with her second novel and so everyone was asking her, why did it take you so long? Why did it take you so long? And she, she just looked at people and she said, I didn't realize I was on a timeline. I didn't realize there was like a stopwatch. Who made that up? Where is this coming from? Uh, no. But it does, the industry does push you. And I can't even imagine being some of these writers that not not only write a novel a year, but write several novels a year. I, I don't think that that would be very satisfying for me in yeah. terms of what I'm putting out, because then you're also always promoting and doing stuff. Oh, it would just drive me crazy. So in terms of craft and what you're talking about and your own style, you said, you know, with this most recent book, um, what do you, what do you think it is? Like, what, what are you paying attention to? What matters to you most that, that makes, um, I, I would probably call it more patience than slowness. That's a nice way to reframe it. I'm always looking for the, you know, what's the mindset flip to turn something that seems like a liability into a strength. Yeah. I think that's helpful in so many different areas of life. And certainly so. I think a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is I'm a person who needs quite a bit of downtime to integrate things. So on the line level, I, I'm not particularly slow on the line level. Like, I don't feel like I'm a painful word by word, like once I get in the zone where I'm ready to write, I actually am fairly fluid and I love that feeling. Um, but I feel I need a lot of time in between things to really let them percolate. And I feel like, especially because my writing tends to be very character driven. Um, this book, Lookout, um, is it's told in the third person, but then it has every other chapter between the narrative arc that is told in the first person direct address of different characters and somebody I had interviewed with once counted and I think I have like 28 characters or something like that 
who all have a little bit of a voice. And it, I'm a person who socially takes a little bit of time. I, I am not a quick to disclose myself person. I have some layers and the people that I know best, I have also seen in a lot of different ways and a lot of different facets of friendship. And so I really think of the way my characters develop as similar to that. I, I'm just a person who takes time to get to know people and to let them know me. And so, like you said, I feel like I need to have time to just let the stuff that has come out in the writing just settle in and live with it and live with these people and get to know them internally in a way that isn't even related to the line by line sentence right. level production. Um, and sometimes for me, that means putting the book away for quite some time. So when I mentioned the 10 years, the, the original draft that was a short story I wrote in 1997, and then I put that story away. Bill Kittredge actually, bless his heart, told me I was like, you know, 23. And he was like, you know, this is not a story. And I was like, oh, no, what do you mean? Like, And he's like, it's oh. a novel. And I about fell out of my chair because at that point, you know, I love short stories. I still do. But that's what I imagined I was going to write first was a book of them. And so the idea of a novel was just like unfathomable to me. So I put it away for a really long time while I focused on stories, while I had a, uh, the beginning of my career in manual labor doing trail building, um, which is another related uh, mantra for me is, oh, I should I should have a more rigid writing practice. We hear a lot about people who I, I rise at 530, I make my coffee and I write until noon and then I check my email for 40 minutes and then I do whatever. And it's like, for whatever reason, my personality isn't particularly um, logistical like that. And also my life isn't. I spend six months of every year in the backcountry or in the field doing pretty rigorous manual labor. And I, I'm not, for whatever reason, the kind of person who can scribble down lines at night. So I had, you know, nearly a decade where I that novel sat in a folder or that story, I mean, sat in a folder and I didn't, didn't even think about it. But I do think I was working on it on, on the life level. You know, I, I, I just came to me, it sounds sort of, I don't know, too, maybe too like uh, slangy, but like there's the line level of writing for me where I'm making the sentences and falling in love with the language and the dialogue. And then there's also the life level, which is I become whoever I am so that I'm available for where the book needs to go. And I feel like that part, I could not have written Lookout with as much attention to fractured and and loving families and grief and the process of becoming whoever we dare to be i couldn't have in my 20s no way absolutely not so yeah i think uh all of that is baked into it for me with the the long incubating what and what i think is how amazing that you do this for six months a year <laughs> I mean, I'm excited about that. <laughs> well, it's not like I'm a slave. It's not like I'm a slave to the desk for the rest of the six months. I yeah. still have a pretty sporadic um, practice. So I don't want to like set myself up to be like, oh, yes. And then I'm this driven, you know, like scribe for the rest. But I do, I, I think in part because of the way, you know, my, my labor life unfolded at the exact same time as my writing life in my early 20s and through now. And so a lot of the rhythm, rhythms I've developed are just how do I make those two things work? And I yeah. think because of that, I'm a very internal, like I, I don't write in a notebook or bring a laptop into the backcountry in my tent or anything, but I have so much dialogue and scene and details of the living world that have come to me through my hands-on job that I can't even imagine 
how I would have tried to get that stuff through research. I feel like so much of the groundedness of where I want to write and what I want to write about comes from living in it. So um, that in a way is part of the writing as well. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Um, let's go back. We we did a we did a uh, an episode on research today too, and the fact that you're just actually living your research, um, I think, is so important and something to, for people to think about. Like um, that, when we are doing other things in our lives, we are in a way still writing because we're still breathing in the world. We're still absorbing the world so that we can write, so that we can also live. But um, but they work hand in hand. It's not like you're not doing anything. Um, let's go back. So this, um, we were also talking about, you know, the difference between a short story and a novel. What was it that he saw in that story that made him think it was a novel? Cause I think a lot of our listeners would like to, to kind of understand that. And did you agree? Well, at the time, I don't think I had enough understanding of the differences between genres in a deep way. I mean, I understood, you know, length and chapters as opposed to a shorter arc and what you could take on and all that just from studying fiction. But I don't think I understood deeply what he meant. And and like I said, I was pretty intimidated by it. Um, yeah. I think looking back, uh, he meant that. So the original story, which is the first chapter roughly of the novel there's a lot more to the first chapter now but the very original scene was about a father and a daughter in northwest montana which is where the novel is set um and they it, it hinges around her playing with matches and him teach starting a small fire on their property to sh show her about the power of fire and um i wrote that back when i was just had moved to the west and was living in you know uh fire country and this was in the mid 90s so things have changed so much culturally around fire and fire suppression and living in fire country now in the last several decades that i think the book has a different heft now than that little nugget did you know 20 some right. years ago but i think he saw something in the relationship the emotional connection and tension between the father and the daughter that seemed to him like it could bear a long look um that's at least i I'm guessing, I can't ask him, he's gone now, but um, uh, he died a few years ago. But um, that's my guess, because that's what I found when I returned to it. So, you know, after the 10 years that I put it away, and I didn't, I went to graduate school in my early 30s and wrote a, a collection of short stories. And I never even thought about this old story. I, it's so funny to me. It wasn't part of my thesis. It wasn't anything I even returned to, to kind of play around with. It was just this totally early draft. And then I thought about it later. I had written another short story in my fiction workshop that was a, the direct address that I was talking about. So the the or, the organizing chapters go like, oh, you know, it's not once upon a time, but like Cody and her father did this and they went here and they thought about this. And then the direct address chapters are, hey, Michelle, what are you doing? I, I can't tell what's behind you. Tell me more about where you're, you know, that kind of voice. So I wrote mm -hmm. this other story in my early 30s and I, nothing about it was the same, not the voice, not the name of the character, not the time period, but something in it. I was like, I think these might be the same two sisters from that old story in Montana. And that was the light that went on that helped me realize that this might be a multivocal story. And that's what helped me be able to kind of develop what the larger arc would be. Um so I don't know on a practical level, how do you know? I don't, I don't know, but I, I think often about um, 
one of my teachers in graduate school was a poet, Linda McCarriston. She's still a poet. <laughs> She's a wonderful teacher and writer. Um, actually from the kind of uh, Boston area. She was born in Lynn, Massachusetts and uh, is in the Boston area. Um, but uh, she used to say about poet poem drafts that she wanted us to lay your hand on the page and see where it felt hot, which I always thought was such a lovely, just completely magical way of thinking about how you determine what is alive in a draft. Um, and so I think there's some of it to that for me. And if a short story is willing to become something longer, there's some place in the story that feels active despite its own closure. And yeah. it's interesting you mentioned Marilyn Robinson because um, I really love her. Um, I mean, her first book, Housekeeping, I love, but the Gilead trilogy and the way she returns, they're not, they're not um, sequential and they're not even really linked, but they're built in the same world. And I think of it a little bit like that. Like there must've been something in her novels when she wrote Gilead, she thought there's something still hot in here that became the novel home. And there's something else and that became um, Jack. Right. Um, and I just think that those function a little bit to me, the way a story that builds something larger does. I don't know well, if she like that. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm putting words in her mouth, but because, oh, let's speak for Marilyn Robinson. But I just, I, <laughs> and if she finds out, she can contact us, and right? Then we can talk about it. That would be terrible. Um, but that wow, I love that advice of finding what's hot in the poem because what's energized, what's what's rich, what you can continue with, what's on fire, um, anything. Um, and so how quickly did you find this structure for this book? Because this is a, I, I love ambitious structures. I'm always recommending my students do more simple structures just to like save themselves the headache and save themselves the years. But some, some of us are just bored by that. Mm -hmm. And so we try these much more, much harder things because our minds kind of work on those multiple levels. So how quickly did you find that? Um, it's interesting, two answers quickly and not quickly at all <laughs> you know the the, this, the novel began once I realized I want to build this story I want to hear this story into something larger um I started writing in the third person that I'm talking about it's vaguely it's not quite omniscient as in the very old-fashioned sense of it but there's a there's an omniscience and then a connection to a certain third person character um and I love that kind of transportive storytelling where you just are taken away by the, the larger voice of a story. But I always have had a little part of me that doesn't quite trust the homogenizing intent of that kind of story where no one else gets to talk. It's all this invisible narrator. And, you know, formative books for me, like Moby Dick, for instance, which in some ways the narrative voice is the old homogenizing narrator, but there are all the alternative chapters where you're getting different angles and different you know, the history of whaling and the bits and parts that are on the boat and all of the smaller characters that are always inserting. I really mm -hmm. wanted when I don't know that I would have thought of it like, oh, I want to do this. But because that direct address story popped out and said, hey, I'm the same sisters. What are you going to do with me <laughs> for a yeah. long time? I thought that that direct address style was going to be more part of the understory of the novel. So it might be what I needed to use to write into the characters, but it would fall away in the final. And then the more they started happening and the more I started allowing other narrators to speak, I would, I would almost like get to the end of a third person chapter. And then I would see 
the idea of what's hot under your hand might be who in that chapter didn't get to say their piece. And then the next chapter, the direct address would become whoever wanted to speak next, who might be somebody who had something really different to say. They might be somebody who would be like, what the hell are you talking about to the previous part of the story? They might be puncturing some sense of overconfidence or or something. And then once that developed, it really took itself away. Then, of course, I had a the, the niggle that always happens with structure is you got to be once you choose it, you need to make sure the architecture stands. You can't just drop it after half the book because it didn't work anymore. Or you ran out of people because then it just seems lazy instead of intentional. Um, mm -hmm. Unless you really foregrounded that, then maybe you could make a super, super fragmented thing. But for me, I wanted to have the consistent reemergence of the structure. And so it took some time to develop voices that weren't immediate and to sit with allowing what's the undercurrent that isn't being spoken. I think that's another thing that has to do with the time elapsed is I'm really interested in the unsaid stories, the unspoken things, the things I don't know yet. And those take time. You can't just make up a new narrator or it feels inserted. And so I had times where I felt myself doing that, like, oh, I'm kind of now I'm just like making a puppet say something for a chapter. So I had to sit yeah. and let that fall away. And there are some that didn't make it in. There are others that um, that took a lot of time for me to to figure out whether I I felt like I could inhabit that voice without taking something from it or from the story. It sounds a little kind of muddled right now, but um, the yeah. idea for the structure and the big picture of it came once it clicked it was like boom i'm off but yeah. the making sure that everything fit um took some time and it's interesting i'm not a big like draft an arc and write to a, a outline writer and so i think it took extra time for me because i still wanted to cultivate the the more sporadic nuanced kind of up flowing writing style that i have and not deaden it by too much architecture yeah. So it, it was a balance for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so what I'm hearing, I mean, it seems like you really trust your instincts and you pay attention to this. This just doesn't feel honest. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not hitting something good here um, yep. and willing to listen to yourself for that. And what I'm also hearing is looking at the book instead of preconceived ideas that you had instead of a, a pre-planned structure because i have all these writers they're like oh i just want to figure everything out for my next book so that i don't make the mistakes in my first book and i'm like well good luck with <laughs> 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 i mean that sounds really bitchy but but i mean it just doesn't it's going to be a mess and i and i do think you have to pay attention to the book instead of necessarily preconceived ideas that you have about it what is happening on the page what is most alive as it's coming to you so it seems like you are very just aware of what is working on the page and allowing yourself to sit with that and grow with that and just have that lead you forward um, yeah have energy yep. lead you forward yeah yeah I think you're right about that I, I mean I have I do have a pretty strong not an inner confidence with what if I'm doing it works, but it doesn't come only from confidence. It also comes from being willing to call bullshit on yourself. And that's a really strong thing for me is I have to be willing. If I'm if I'm willing to say this is my best thing, I'm standing behind this and I love it. I love these people. I also have to be like, oh, my God, that's that's you're not really real here or these people aren't you're using them or something. I have to be willing yeah. to say when it's not working as well. And that helps me develop 
And I think that helps me ride out a lot of the vagaries that can come from too much input. You know, I don't tend to give a lot of advice because I don't think we're all the same and we have different ways and whatever. But I feel like I see a lot of people, t young writers that I'm teaching or or maybe I've seen this in myself at different times that too much search for validation, especially in early drafts with um can lead to people losing a sense of their own confidence and their own uh, their own trust in themselves. Maybe not yeah. even confidence, but trust that what they're doing and saying is what they mean to. It can be really easy to be pulled off by, you know, oh, most of the workshop didn't care for that or my agent didn't love that draft. And, you know, I had really wise advice from an agent one time who, you know, didn't end up being the right fit, but who said, it's not because the book is wrong you need to figure out what the book that you want to write is and then find the people or the path that can support that. And of course, that doesn't mean not taking any input. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But I, for me, a sense of trust really builds from building a, the world of pressurizing it within my own work and my own thinking about it. And then also within reading, that's the other thing I haven't mentioned yet. And I can never close anything without talking about how reading does that for me seeking out reading that's different i have a little paradigm with reading that i do where i try every couple of books i change up both the genre and also some one of the identity markers of the authors so that i don't ever read you know 10 novels by a white lady and then five books of poems by a a black American man, like I, I really want to be reading in a kind of hopscotching way that brings everything alive to me differently nice. on the page. And, yes. and also I've seen in my own work, you know, a good example with this particular book is um, I came up in the Western novels um, canon. Like I loved Little House on the Prairie and Willa Cather and um, the Margaret, uh, Mildred Taylor's role of thunder, those were in the South, but very place-based kind of families in the land stories. And then when I moved to Western Montana, I read the, the novel, um, Fool's Crow by, uh, James Welch, who's a Blackfeet Grovant, um, um, Montana indigenous writer. And that book just blew the top off my skull because it was, it was a kind of a, narrative like the big sky the big you know famous ab guthrie novels and the kind of westward but it was entirely inhabited from the space and the consciousness of an indigenous man narrating um and it was the whole it was a time period that i had loved but from a completely different anchoring viewpoint and that novel i really credit with um seeing how a, a western story could become more multivocal um even for a you know a white centered experienced writer like me it's never been the same for me to read westerns without the lens of who else is in the story that isn't speaking um yeah so me yeah reading is takes the place maybe of a lot of input but i'm getting push pushing from other writers vantages i guess yeah and that just gives you it, it just gives you license to do things in a different way and to listen in a different way, I think, um, than just, you know, you're learning from what you're reading instead of just learning from feedback, which which is very, very important. I think people, I mean, the books you're reading are, are gonna be some of the best teachers you have. And to yeah. challenge yourself to read different things so that you can knock yourself out of those 
those ideas like a book is supposed to be like this. It's supposed to be shaped like this. It's supposed to do this because there's a lot of writers that are bucking that and doing extremely well and they're astonishing and they'll open you up too. Now, you also talked about, you said, well, I have to pay attention to my own bullshit <laughs> detector. Yeah. Are there times that days, days, weeks, maybe months where that bullshit is just calling every day, every hour? Or, or I mean, how do you get yourself through that? Or do you? Maybe maybe you don't have, maybe that's not an issue. Maybe you have more trust in yourself. But I do hear sometimes people, I get writers who just get so caught in their that own that own negative voice and then they can't trust themselves. They they yeah. can't get themselves out of it. Yep. And I think I it's, it's I'm trying to piece out how I would say it, but it's almost like I can tend toward a negative, a self-critical loop. Um not in some ways I feel like in my writing I do better than in the rest of my life. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, Miley, you're such a disaster. You're always losing your keys. Think about how much more you'd have accomplished if you could ever find what you're looking for. You know, that kind of stuff. It's more like yeah. a personal weight. And I almost feel like in the writing, I don't know, in some ways it's easier to call the bullshit. It's not so if I think of it, it's not so attached to me. It's not like, oh, you wrote a shitty sentence or you're a bad writer this week. It's more just like that didn't work or that's really yeah. flat or man, you're really, you're really posturing here, aren't you? Or that character isn't understood yet or whatever. But in a way I feel more free, the more I can call myself out when it happens, the more I feel yeah. like I can really believe in the parts that are working. Whereas if I were always trying to just sunny side up myself, you got this, you're great. Every day is worth doing. Like, I would just feel like, how am I going to trust when I know something really is resonate, res has resonance? So yes. I, I don't know. I try to have a sense of levity to it. So it's not like a heavy, like, oh, you suck. That was a bad day. It's more like, uh, 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 you're not getting away with that on my watch. You know, that yeah. you're using that character in a way that they haven't give you license for, or that way of writing a quote, a diverse piece is not yet centering the actual diverse voice. It's using your own lens to kind of make them do what you want, or, you know, you're writing in a way that is pleasing to yourself syntactically, but it doesn't fit what's supposed to be happening right now, all that kind of stuff, but depersonalizing it and, and having a sense of fun where I'm catching myself, you know, is more, makes it more sustainable, I think, and not turn into just like a way to punish yourself for not getting it right. Yeah. So you're able to detach. It doesn't become personal. And probably the more you're able to do that, the more you, more confidence you have. Yes, and the exactly. Just the more and more you're able to do that. Okay. Christine, I'm going to have to let you go. She's, by the way, she's in Baja. So she yeah. needs to have fun. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun. Yes. <laughs> Um, but everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can find other listeners. So Christine, I want to give you the last word. Do you have any final advice to our writers about breaking through their writing obstacles? Well, I already confessed I'm not a big advice person because I'm a terrible advice taker. I'm so, I'm such a like iconoclast. I always want to be like, you know, yeah, don't take advice. But you know, actually you gave a little 
that I heard in the middle that really is something I really believe in for myself. When you mentioned listening to the book, I think it's really easy to convince ourselves that writing is about talking because you're making speech and putting it out to be read. And, but for me, really deep writing, the stuff that works and moves me forward is about listening, listening to the world, listening to my own instinct, listening to the characters and an attentiveness that I'm really glad you use that word. Cause I think if I'm giving myself advice, my own self, it is that like downplay the talking up the listening and yeah. that, which is a really funny thing to say after I've just talked for 30 minutes, but there you have it. <laughs> it shows about talking, but it's about quiet. It's about patience. It's about paying attention um, to what you've already written. And you can't do that unless you just let yourself write it. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I yep. think that's going to be helpful to a lot of people. Okay. Thank you so much, Christine. Thanks thank for you having me. Thank it's you. And I hope you. Yes, it's so <laughs> I met Christine at Breadloaf, right? Isn't that yeah. where we met? Yeah, Breadloaf. And, uh, and Christine carried me on her back. <laughs> Which I was very fun. Do you remember that? I did what? You you were proving your your trail running, and you carried me on my your, on your back because I'm a rather small person, and you were and you were very strong. Anyway, we don't need I to not remember that, but that's funny. Talk about that privately. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Everyone. You can you can you can wonder about that on your own. But uh, get to your writing desk. I hope you have a wonderful writing day. I hope you're able to achieve some quiet and listening. Thank you.